you please pray the words, come Holy Spirit, with me three times. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Abba Father, we thank and praise you for this gift to be at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. I ask that you send forth your Holy Spirit upon me and every person here. Please give me the gift of tongues and please give every single person here the gift of interpretation so that whatever fears, anxieties, anything that's not of God that's oppressing them, they may experience the joy and the freedom of the gospel. And I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the worst part about being in a war? We hear about Moses, who is a type of Jesus in our gospel today. And we hear about his friends, Aaron and Hur, who are supporting his arms so he doesn't quit, right? And what's like the worst part of being in a war? I would say the first thing is just not knowing that you're in a war. Like, that would be at the worst. And I would say even worse is not recognizing that there's actually a saving remedy. There's actually hope for you. And even worse is not having the support of friends who also believe and then not persevering in the good fight. And often we say at the end of the gospel, the gospel of the Lord, we say praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. My question to you, like, what is the gospel? Unfortunately, I would say that a lot of people don't, do not know the answer to this question. So as we enter into this homily, I just want you to pray for the gift of wonder and awe, or it's also known as fear of the Lord. And that doesn't mean you're afraid of him. It's like you're so awestruck. You're, you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And also, we want to pray for an experience of the power of the gospel. I'm totally going to plagiarize this homily. This comes from a friend of mine, Father John Ricardo. He's giving me full permission to do this, so just disclosure there. But often, as, as, as priests, people walk into our offices and they, and they, and they usually ask, like, what, what can I do for you? Um, and it's, it's really important before we kind of answer that question is just explaining them how we see the world. All of us have, have a worldview because if, if, if priests don't explain how they see the world, nothing else makes sense. Some of us have, have different lenses and we, 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 we see the story that's real going through our minds, our bodies, our souls, our, how we see the world. And some of us think, think the world is, is going to hell in a handbasket and there's no hope. Maybe that's, maybe that's you here today. Some of us actually experience the power of the gospel and we see the world through different lens. We see the world through the scriptures. And it's so important that you and I begin to develop and even redevelop a biblical worldview. So, so we, we, see the, we want to see the world through four, four questions. The first one is, why is there something instead of nothing? So often in, in faith formation, we don't cover that question. Like, why is there something instead of nothing? Scripture says, because God, out of his extraordinary love and without any effort, brought it all into being. In Genesis 1.16, we read Moses writing, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, which would be the, it's okay, two you're awake, the sun, and made a lesser light to rule the night, which would be the moon. And he made the stars. What day is that in creation? It's day four. So Moses wasn't writing literally. So how do you get a day without the sun or the moon, right? 
And, and do you even know like how many stars there are? This is like part of that wonder and awe that we're praying for. Like we live in a galaxy that has with about a bi- 100 billion stars in it. And there are actually 2 trillion galaxies in the universe, each with between 100 and 400 billion stars in it. As of this morning, the universe that God brought into being is 90 plus billion light years across. And it's actually still expanding. For those who are math majors, that's 90 billion times 5.88 trillion miles across. And to this day, we believe there's over 373 sextillion stars in the universe. Now, I'm not a math major, so I like to use my, my Im- images for this. So just imagine a sandcastle, and every single star is a grain of sand. That sandcastle would be 35 miles high by 35 miles long by 35 miles deep. And the sun is actually a small star in comparison to most stars in the universe. Yet you can actually, t- you can actually fit about one million Earths in the star, or in the sun. And one of the largest stars that was found a couple of years ago is called the Big Dog Star. And you can roughly fit seven quadrillion Earths in the Big Dog Star. What the heck does that even mean, quadrillion? Seven quadrillion is the number seven with 15 zeros after it. Maybe we should take a little more of a notice when Moses says, oh yeah, and he made the stars, right? And everything that is, he made. Yet the highlight of all his creation, the absolute most important creature that he made is you and me. Made in his image and likeness, made for friendship, made for love, made for communion with him and with each other, made to actually share in his divine and abundant life. And everything he created was good, yet when he created you and me, he said, very good. Okay, that's great. If that was the end of the story, you probably wouldn't be here right now, which provokes a second question. Why is everything so messed up? Uh, as my as Father Ricardo says, who gave me this, he says, he would say, what the hell happened? I would say, why don't I believe that? So for someone who walks into a priest's office, we usually ask, you know, why are you here with the trauma you just named? Like, why do people get cancer? Why do children die? Why do people get abused? Why do children get aborted? Why? 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 The biblical answer to that question is because one of the most beautiful creatures that God created was good because it's all important to remember that God only creates good things. And he was an angel and his name is Lucifer. But out of envy, and envy is someone who is jealous of you but actually wants you to suffer, out of envy, he chose to rebel against God and went to war against the creature that God loved the most, and that creature is us. And at the very beginning of our race, what he did was trick our first parents of Adam and Eve. He got them somehow to believe that God wasn't good, that he was holding out on them, and that he was keeping them down, that he was oppressing them. He deceived them also into rebelling against God. Yet the result of that deception was that our first parents unknowingly sold us, the human race, into slavery against powers that you and I cannot compete against. What are the powers? It's the powers of sin and death. Death and sin in certain parts of the scriptures are in capital letters, like governments. 
that exercise dominion, that is control, lordship, dominating, telling us that we are going to die and there is nothing you can do about it. That was not a part of God's original plan. Death is actually not even supposed to be a part of our world. And how powerful is sin? Just ask yourself, have you ever done anything that you did not want to do, that you knew you shouldn't do, that you even hated doing, and you ended up doing it anyways? We shall be thinking, yeah, like every day. Why is that? Because sin is a power. Have you ever had someone tell you that something, harm, something was harmful that they do, and they said it isn't a big deal? Thinking of drinking, drugs, immodesty, impurity, lying, etc. The question is, well, why can't they stop doing it? Or why do they even overreact when they say it's not a big deal and you say you probably shouldn't do that? Why? Because sin is a power. And it's, it's super important that you and I soak ourselves in the sacred scriptures. Scriptures can be seen as game film for those of you who are athletes. Scripture is extremely helpful in this battle against the powers of sin and death. Scripture is like game film. So to go into battle or to go into a game without studying your opponent is extremely imprudent and borderline dangerous. This is why Bible studies are so necessary in college. If you haven't thanked your Bible study leader, like now would be a great time to do that. Just for a moment, I just want you to imagine being a victim of human trafficking. Someone has taken you and abducted you and no one's coming for you. No one knows where you are. You're now in the hands of a fiend who loves to use you. And that's going to be your life forever. Which provokes a third question. What, if anything, has God done about this? Just a moment, I just want you to imagine again, what is it like to be trafficked? You're in that hopeless room, locked up, tied up. And when you try to sleep, that means you're vulnerable. And yet one night, you are lying there and you feel the touch on your shoulder. And that's not good either. Because that means I'm probably going to get hurt. Yet you open your eyes and you look up and you see the face of somebody who doesn't look like anyone you've ever seen before. Yet this person is looking at you and smiling at you. And somehow he exudes strength and love. And he stands you up and he smiles at you and he unties you and he begins to walk you toward the door. And outside the door is a person who's been making your life a living hell. So you're at one time exhilarated that you might be free, but at other time you're extremely terrified because you know what is out there. And you cross the threshold with this man who is taking you and you see just outside the door the man who used to terrorize you and suddenly now he's all tied up. And the man who is with you looks at you and tells you, you don't have to worry about him anymore. I took care of him. This is what Jesus did to the enemy, and it's so important for us to know the enemy is not another person. The enemy is the enemy. It's not another gender. It's not another race, a political party. It's not anyone else besides the enemy. And God, out of his extraordinary love, becomes a man so as to rescue you and me from those powers that you and I cannot compete against. God becomes man to go to war, to free people, and he does it in the most creative way. He actually hides himself under, the, under human flesh. 
This is what Jesus is actually doing on the cross. It's so important to know it's not happening to him. Like you can't nail God to a cross unless he wants to be there. He's willing to somehow, he's willing it to show you and I how much the Father loves us. He's willing it so he can bear in his own body the penalty, the debt for our sins that you and I cannot pay. He's also willing it because he's going to war. You and I matter to him to the point of him going to war with the powers we can't compete against. So he went to war for us to win us back to himself. This is how the early church used to talk about this by saying it is only right that the one who deceived our race should himself be deceived and bringing about himself his own destruction. So Satan loses. He thinks he wins, but Satan loses. But he loses by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The power of sin and death have been conquered. Are you and I still going to die? Yes. Of course we are. The thing is, sin can't hold you anymore. The good news is you and I actually don't have to sin anymore. Sin has actually lost its power over us, which leads to the fourth question. If this is all true, if someone has really, really, really walked into the human trafficking house, what is the reasonable or rational response? Isn't it to trust him? Who could you trust more than someone who did all of that just for you? And now this is God we are talking about. A God who defeated the powers of sin and death. Like, Isn't that the rational response to surrender? That's what faith is. Romans 1.16 says, St. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, and the, the Greek word he used there, it is dynamite. It's explosive power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for, to first the Jews and also the Greeks. That's the biblical worldview. Now my question to you is, is could you share this message? You're called to persevere in our first reading today and in the gospel. Aaron and her are holding up Moses' hands, and when he puts his hands down, people suffer. That means you and I have a responsibility. And some of you are being called to be leaders, but great leaders on this campus. But the thing is, you cannot do this alone. You can't fight it alone. So Aaron and her are symbols of people holding up the leaders of the church in this battle for souls, like the church exists for the salvation of souls. And when you and I don't fight, people suffer. I mean, you're thinking, I, I don't know if I can be a leader, but can you hold the leader's arms up so they don't quit? Can you encourage them? Can you pray with them? And the, and the good news is, like, all we're called to do is be mailmen. This message actually does the work for us. So often we put the pressure on ourselves and think we have to save people. But no, what we have to do is take, take this message and share it with people, and it, it'll do the work for you. And this is extraordinary and life-changing news. And how honored you and I ought to be to share this message. And I have 30 copies of Dynamite on the altar right now for you. To take one with you, to pray with it this week in front of the Blessed Sacrament. 
And could you do what I just did? I'm literally trying to make this as easy as possible for you. All I did was read from you from a sheet of paper. That's what we do. I think so often we make it so difficult and it's important to, to witness, of course, what difference it's made in your life. But also, mailmen have pretty easy jobs, right? You just bring a message and someone opens it and reads it. And this, this message, again, as St. Paul said, is power. But so often we become weary, we become worn out like Moses. And that's where we need to hold one another up. And Jesus ended the gospel with a beautiful line I want us really to take to heart. He said, I tell you, he will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find trust on earth? Will he find confidence on earth? And the thing is, guys, Jesus is going to be here in just a moment on the altar in the Holy Eucharist. The same one who wrote this word, body, blood, soul, and divinity, is going to be here. And the question is, do you believe that? Do you receive him worthily, humbly, reverently? Or do we receive him like it's just a piece of bread? I just want to witness to you a little about my own conversion. Because in my, my, my life, like I was in college, sophomore year, I've been doing all the stuff that, that people said I should be doing. I'm away from mom and dad. I'm playing sports. I'm involved in hookup culture. I'm involved in drinking. And, and, and whether I was aware of it or not, the question was, I wasn't happy. But everyone told me, everyone told me, when you go to college, you're going to be happy because you're free. You can do whatever you want to do. But I was actually miserable. And by the grace of God, my, my oldest brother was listening to Relevant Radio, which you can listen to in, in Oshkosh, just 10.50 a.m. And he was listening because he was being set on fire by this message, by the gospel. And he knew that he had to be a better man. And he heard about this first annual Men of Christ conference in West Bend. And he invited me to go, and, and, and I didn't have any, any expectations, but I thought it would be more like kumbaya, we'd probably hold hands or something. My image of Christianity was pretty low, because I wasn't challenged. I was never given dynamite, right? And I went to that, that conference, and the master ceremonies, he said, to, he said to us, gentlemen, after today, your lives will never be the same. There's 3,000 of us there, by the way. And he said to us again, gentlemen, after today, your lives will never be the same. I never heard a Catholic talk with that much conviction. He believed in the power of the gospel. And the first guy who came out and presented, I don't really remember a word he said, but he was incredibly on fire. His name is um, Jesse. And he was so on fire. And he was an ex-cop. And he talked about his life and the, and the power of the gospel. And I was just like, a little bit like, back off, right? That was like a little bit too much, a little too on fire. But he was clearly on fire. But the next guy who came out was a young priest. I never saw a young priest in my whole life. But he came and he challenged us with what it means to be a man, and not a worldly man, and, and all the people who think a worldly man is, is good, like, you know, womanizing and partying and cars and clothes and money. And he began to flip that, and what I began to see is what it means to be a man is to, is to be Christ crucified, to have a sacrificial life. And he's telling jokes, and he's funny, and I'm like, I, don't, I tell jokes, and I'm not funny. I would like that. And then he said, you know, he had zeal for life, and I'm like, I wish I had zeal for life. So he had what I wanted, and he said, if you want to be a man of God, go to confession and surrender your life to Jesus today. And I was like, Sounds pretty easy. I don't even know what the things I was doing were wrong. I would call them sins. But I knew in my heart of hearts what I was doing was wrong, and I wanted freedom. So I went to go to confession. There was a line to go to confession that day, and there was uh, like three or four priests that kind of split us off to, because again, there's 3,000 men. 
And there's this one guy who's like 6'6", and he's like 350 pounds. And I'm just praying like, Lord, please don't send me to that one. Lord, please don't send me to that one. Lord, please don't send me to that one. And I did. And he scared the sin right out of me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, No, he was incredibly gentle. And just to experience mercy, experience the power of the gospel, just to feel that lift finally, that I don't have to fight these powers that I can't fight, just felt free. And then after lunch that day, the next speaker was a priest who was clinically dead for three hours and came back to life. And internally, I'm getting angry. Because I'm thinking, how come nobody ever shared this message with me? Like, I'm literally dying out here. I'm miserable. And then I get in time for Mass. And I wish I could say the music was amazing. I don't remember the music. I don't even remember the gospel. I don't remember the readings. But it was what we do at every single Mass. And Cardinal Dolan was the Archbishop of Milwaukee at the time. And the altar's being set. And I can kind of feel the room changing but everything in me is saying, this is not real. This is fake. I'm concocting this. This is for other people, not me, because I'm, I'm too far gone, right? And as the bread and wine are placed on the altar, and he, he calls down the Holy Spirit upon the gifts, I just felt the room change. I really felt the power of the Holy Spirit for the first time in my life. But again, I'm thinking, this is not real. I'm, I'm faking this. I'm concocting this in my mind. I'm trying to make something happen. But then eventually, I just couldn't deny it, that something was happening and then as he took bread in his hand and he, said, and, he, and he said the words of institution and spoke the words and he said, this is my body, which has been given up for you. Like, I knew it was Jesus. I don't know how I knew, but I knew it was Jesus because when he held him up, I just felt the most pure form of love in my life. I, every dam in my life broke. Just snot bubbles, crying, just feeling loved. And as he held up Jesus and offered him up in atonement for all of our sins, I just heard the words in my heart, not externally, but internally. This is the purpose of life, and you are called to be a priest. And it scared me. Maybe you're scared about sharing this gospel, but it scared me because I didn't know anything. I didn't know what seminary was. I didn't know what discernment was. I didn't know what vocation directors were. I knew nothing. Like, just to be honest with you, like where I was at, I thought if I told someone that I wanted to be a priest, they would take me to a church, because I'm pretty sure you had to go to a church, and then they would, they would uh, maybe some guys like in some black hoods or something, they'd take like some pixie dust and sprinkle it over my head and, and do some finger motions and say some words. And then that day I'd be celebrating mass and hearing confessions. And thank God that's not true, right? But that's like where I was at. And I, I wish I could say after that conference, you know, um, I was crystal clean. I, I never sinned again. But I, I, I sinned probably the worst in my life after that. Because out of my fear, the devil played tricks on me thinking I could compete with these, these powers of sin and death or saying that it's not that big of a deal. Or I'd often commit, this, commit the sin of presumption, which is um, going to confession so you can actually keep sinning. I had no repentant, I didn't have a repentant heart. But eventually it just got to the point where um, I just felt the Lord saying to me, are you ready to do it my way? Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? I finally told my family and a few other of my relatives, I was thinking of being a priest. That was like a huge step for me, a huge step. Because that, my biggest fear wasn't celibacy, like that wasn't it. My biggest fear was vanity. Vanity is, 
I really cared too much about what other people thought about me. Like, what are they going to say? I was like a punk, athlete, drinking kid, a bully, class clown, right? This doesn't really fit the bill for a priest. And I'd read the lives of the saints, and I'd realize I am not alone in this. There are plenty of people who have had huge conversions. But this message, this gospel, I firmly believe needs to be spread. And I can't do it myself. That's why community is needed. I need you to hold my arms up. We need to hold each other's arms up so we don't, we don't get fighting. The worst part about being in a war is not realizing you're in one, but you realize you're in one, and then realizing you're not alone, that springs hope. That springs hope. So after Mass, I'll give you a copy. And I want you to pray with it. And the challenge this week is to bring three people with you every time you go to the, you go to the chapel upstairs and pray between three and five minutes in front of the Lord. Just spend time in front of him. Recently had a friend who said this. When we're in front of the Lord, we're just facing him. We're like solar panels. And he, and he lights us up so we can give light to others. When we don't go to him, we turn our backs to him. We can't receive. And then we spread darkness around us. Pray through this mass that you may encounter Jesus. It's really him. As you receive him today, whatever you need, don't be afraid to ask him for it. Maybe it's more faith, maybe it's more courage, maybe it's more patience, maybe it's more discipline. Maybe it's simply the grace to encounter him. Because when you know that Jesus is present in the Eucharist and his message saves people, it doesn't become, I'm so afraid of what other people think about me. It becomes, what if this actually helps somebody? And what if I'm called to be that instrument of peace? And also to say, what if I don't have to do this alone anymore? So we pause and we pray. Any fears, any doubts, any anxieties, any sins you have, we place them on the altar. And as the bread and wine are transformed into his body, blood, body and blood, soul and divinity, we pray that we too are transformed into his image and likeness. Amen.